here it is a uh, Tuesday and uh, see what's going on oh coming up in half an hour uh, Gary and Shannon of course uh, show up I think they have uh, uh, they have James Comey at 1030 pretty exciting stuff tomorrow we'll have James Comey at seven o'clock because he's supposed to come on today but there was a uh, mix-up with the calendaring with the uh, Comey folks uh, also in half an hour it's a handle on the law marginal legal advice so if you would like some advice, uh, just uh, half an hour from now, just call 877-520-1150. All right. We have cool space news with Rod Pyle. Rod at pilebooks.com and all of his podcasts, uh, Cool Space News. And it goes back uh, quite a ways. I mean, we've been doing this a long time, right, Rod? We have indeed. All right. Uh, so, not- we're, we're, so we go back to uh, the Wright brothers, I think. Actually, no. That's a bad. No, that's a bad analogy. We should go to Robert Goddard. Uh, that's a better analogy. All right. Well, you know, bring up the Wright brothers, though. That does bring one thing to thought, which is we used to talk about years ago <clears throat> how long it was between the time the Wright brothers were the, made their first flight and the time Apollo Eleven landed on the moon, and we're very shortly going to be upon the time in which it's about that same distance of years between the time Apollo Eleven landed on the moon and today which is kind of stunning when you think about it. Yeah, except uh, the technology hasn't really exploded. Well, it has, but not in the, on the manned uh, uh, area. It's right, certainly right. It's in gotten... terms of the satellite. And that, and by the way, that leads us right into uh, the topic. Good segue, by the way. We couldn't have done oh, it better if we tried. Anytime. All right, here comes Tess. Who, here comes or, Tess. Yeah, who or what is Tess? Tess is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And it's another space telescope, which has been designed in, in very general terms to go up and replace Kepler, which has been up there since 2009, discovering exoplanets right and left. And it's, uh, depending whether you look at the confirmed or unconfirmed ones, it's almost up to 6,000 exoplanets. So Kepler's done great work. But as you know, a few years after it was launched, it started having guidance issues, gyroscopes going out and so forth. So it had to just kind of sit and stare in one direction for years at a time. So TESS is designed to pick up that mission, look at closer star systems, and look at both brighter and dimmer stars, and it's going to survey larger slices of the sky much more quickly. So they're expecting, depending on how long it works, you know, they always set a primary mission of a couple of years, and then mission extensions after that, which almost always go forward. So they're guessing it might pick up as many as 20,000 more exoplanets. The main thing it's going to do that's important, besides, of course, discovering them is cool, is identify targets for the Webb, James Webb Space Telescope to look at to do spectral analysis on once it gets up there. And that's when we start seeing what's actually in the atmosphere yeah. and whether or not there might be life. Now, exoplanets are, of course, planets that are in that golden zone around a star system uh, that are rocky planets. Uh, do I have that right? And they may or may not have water. Well, any anything around another star is an exoplanet. So, but yeah, the ones that we're really interested in are those rocky terrestrial planets that are in that Goldilocks zone that we hope have liquid water, and we want to see things in their atmosphere like nitrogen and so forth that might tell us, hey, there's there's critters doing things. There, sorry, not nitrogen, methane. I mean, 
Well, when are we going to, and I don't even know how close the technology is there, to actually look at these planets, not necessarily with uh, visual light. Uh, I'm not taking pictures, but I'm saying uh, with enough specificity that we can say, yes, that planet uh, is this big and it does have, for example, does it have water? Is there any way to tell with the technology today? Um, they, they are very close to that. I mean, at this point, just by looking at the indirect effects on the stars that they're orbiting, you can get a pretty good idea of mass and uh, diameter and so forth and density. So that they're able to do by indirect measurement. Looking for uh, constituents of the atmosphere itself is a little tougher. They're able to do a little bit of spectral analysis at this point, but that's really something for uh, the web and beyond to be able to look specifically at what's going on in terms of, of elements in the atmosphere. And then finally, of course, what we want to do someday is be able to image them directly. And that's something that they'll be able to start approaching with the web. And when is the web going up? Well, that's a good question. Uh, we're hoping 2019 or 2020, but the, there's there's some issues going on. They're having trouble. It's got that, that sun shade that goes out that looks like a bunch of kites behind it. Uh, that that protects it from the sun and, and keeps it very cold so it can observe the infrared, which is what it's designed to do because that's the best place to look in terms of light. And they're having a little trouble getting out to deploy in the time frame that they want it to, so probably about a year and a half. All right, but and this is a one-time go. Uh, this thing explodes uh, off the launch pad or doesn't uh, hit what it's supposed to be or the... Uh, uh, the it doesn't deploy in terms of uh, the uh, what uh, wings I guess uh, is uh, wait for the power source is going to be uh, is going to be a, a power source from the sun. Uh, believe so. All right, that, and, that's a good question. I haven't looked, but yeah, it's a one shot deal. You can't reach it with with human spaceflight. So if something goes wrong out there uh, on the far side of the lunar orbit, then you're stuck. That's absolutely lovely. All right. So yeah. uh, switching gears, uh, the launch of uh, TESS is uh, going to happen with a, a Falcon 9. And uh, it's uh, if Falcon 9s are, uh, is that the safest rocket that you can launch? I mean, is it one of those where there's not a whole lot of difference between that and the French uh, rocketry or the Boeing uh, rocketry? Ariane. Um, at this point, probably the highest... Now, I haven't looked at Ariane for a while, which is the French-European one, but I think one of the highest reliability ratings is uh, United Launch Alliance's Atlas V. It's got like 96%. Uh, Falcon's a little tiny less because they had, they've had they had, A, fewer flights to amortize it, and, and B, they had a couple of, uh, of uh, accidents over the last handful of years. But they're really close, and we're talking about a couple of percentage points. So, yeah, it's it's very safe and very reliable, and they wouldn't be using it if it wasn't. So TESS is going up on that. So that's cool. That's tomorrow night. At least that's the plan out of the Cape. But what's even cooler is that, you know, Musk's big thing is, yeah, I want to launch rockets. Yeah, I'm working on the big Falcon rocket. All that's great. But I really want to get the parts back so I can use them again and save everybody money, including myself. So as you know, he's flying back the first stages to both barges and to launch site. He's been tr working on rescuing the fairings as they come down on parachutes so we can reuse those, which are the two, two halves of the nose cone shell. Rumor has it, and he's been doing some tweets to indicate either on this launch or the next couple of launches, they're going to try and fly back the second stage, which has to come back from orbit. So that's a big deal. So if he can get all of that done, then we're talking about a uh, 
a very low cost uh, flight relative to uh, what the other companies are doing. Let me go ahead and take a break. We'll be back. And then I have uh, SpaceX and San Pedro and the new GPS. Uh, thank God, maybe it's going to work. Uh, because <laughs> I, they, it always misses the traffic where I am. I'll be right back. Uh, okay. Yeah, thanks. Uh, KFI AM 640, and there's Jennifer. Having a good time, having a good time. Shooting star leaping through the sky like a tiger defying the laws of gravity. I'm a racing car passing by like Lady Godiva. I'm gonna go, go, go. There's no stopping me. I'm back. I'm running through the sky. Jelly Belly, almost timed it correctly. Not quite. I was just, sorry about that. I was just confirming with uh, Shannon that James Comey is going to be on uh, the Gary and Shannon show, and uh, he is um, at 10.30, I think, this morning. So they'll have him live, which is kind of fun. Tomorrow, we'll have James Comey on this show because uh, they screwed up. The Comey people screwed up in terms of days. Uh, we had confirmed today, and they had confirmed tomorrow. So... Uh, tomorrow will be the uh, the great question. And I, we start with, can I call you Jimmy boy? And I'm sure that very few people have started a conversation with uh, Comey with that one. All right, back we go. Uh, Rod Pyle, let's finish it up. Uh, this is uh, Cool Space News, pilebooks.com, and uh, the Cool Space News podcast, which is heard right here on KFI, all of them, because it's uh, I believe they are archived. All right, uh, Rod SpaceX in San Pedro. Why in God's name has he not moved out of here yet? Isn't that neat? Uh, yeah, and they've got a facility. They've got a big facility in Florida. They've got facilities in Texas, but uh, you know he took over that old Northrop facility down at uh, Hawthorne Airport, and he's been working out of there for years. And that's where the big rocket factory is. But to build the Big Falcon rocket, which is three hundred forty-ish feet by thirty feet in diameter. They started doing that at the Hawthorne plant, but said, you know, we got to be able to ship these to the Cape for launching, at least some of them. And uh, that's not going to be an easy thing to do because they're big. So they decided to go ahead and start building down in San Pedro. So they had some property leased down south of Portsacal, down that little spit of land that goes down to where those kind of some of those abandoned freight terminals are from the old days. And uh, he had been. Uh, docking his autonomous recovery barge down there. But this big tent building went up a couple of years ago, and I was driving down there for some reason. and thought, ooh, that looks interesting. And there's no signage. You, know? no, you have no you, idea. You just see a bunch of Teslas in the parking lot. Right, right? And, you th and you thought it was a Cirque du Soleil uh, yeah. venue, didn't you? <laughs> well, Cirque du Soleil is space for me. So uh, then come to find out just the other day that they're starting to assemble components of the BFR there. So apparently they have a big mandrel for winding carbon composite hulls and all that. So this thing is being built, and he had said six months ago, I plan to start second quarter of 2018, and here we are, and by gosh, he's doing it. So, Which for Elon Musk to be on time with anything is a miracle. It is, but you know, when you look at the scale of what he's trying to do, I mean, this thing can launch 330 pounds to low Earth orbit, which is half again as much as a Saturn V. Reusable. Wait, wait, 300, no, no, it has to be more than 330 pounds. You're talking about, what, 30? Uh, sorry, 330,000 <laughs> Right. Pounds. Yeah, yeah I was going, that's not very Thank much. Sputnik weighed more than that. Those decimal points are tricky, aren't they? Right. And, uh, you know, just the technology he's using and, and sinking all these small engines to make a big spacecraft and so forth. I mean, I just, I know I, I kind of gush about this guy, but the fact that he's so far ahead of the pack, and then we just heard the other day, 
NASA is now saying, oh, you know, we're having some troubles with the mobile launch structure for the SLS, so we're going to probably do four unmanned flights after all, all with the original Block 1 setup. And it's like, does it really have to take 20 years to rebuild the Saturn V? That's a little harsh. But SpaceX is making them look like they're standing still. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, obviously, a lot of us, uh, I, you know, between the Tesla and even when he did PayPal, I mean, the guy, you're right, he's on a different planet. And it's guys, it's kind of nice to see visionaries like that go to work. Uh, all right, last uh, the, the the last subject I want to cover is uh, the new, uh, really neato GPS system. And I'm very interested in this because uh, what ends up happening with my GPS is sometimes they just miss when there's real traffic, and it really pisses me off. So I'm assuming uh, this will help enormously to help me drive through traffic, right? Not one bit. Oh, but will help navigate from here to the nearest star system if you're interested in that no and, and there are probably people that want to send you there so that might be something to look into but um as you know gps works by triangulating satellite signals they send out little timing pings or clicks and it's able to say okay this one's over there this one's over there this one's over in that direction now i know where i am so somebody got the bright idea of saying hey we could do the same thing with pulsars out in deep space because the pulsar is a collapsed star a star that's gone supernova and Everything gets crunched down, so it's just a pack of neutrons, and they send out big blasts of X-rays spinning real fast, so you get this regular signal of X-ray pulses. So they said, you know, if we could triangulate between neutrons, uh, between uh, these, these neutron star signals, these pulsars, we'd be able to, in effect, set up a galactic GPS system because we know where those things are, so this would tell us where we, where we were in relation to, the, to those stars. And they actually put some of that information on the uh, gold records that went out on the Voyager spacecraft in the late 70s to tell the aliens where Earth was. What do you mean? How do they put, wait a sec, how do they put information on the 70s about GPS system before GPS even came into being? Well, it wasn't GPS. What they did was they said, okay, here's where we are in relation to Oh, these got cultures. it. All right. And they did it with kind of a, a, a binary signal uh, etched okay. out on, this, on those records. So, yeah, it was just an illustration, but it was the same idea, right? So an experiment went up on the space station a couple of years ago called NICER, which is one of those acronyms that we love from NASA, the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer, and did a very basic experiment to see if they could time out X-ray signals from neutron stars, uh, pulsars, to uh, look, track the location of the space station. And it worked within a few miles, so it needs some adjustment and, and so forth. But the big idea here is when you're traveling out as far as Pluto, uh, which is billions and billions of miles away, or out to other star systems, you're going to have to have a way to navigate. And even at Pluto, radio signals take four and a half hours to reach Earth. Right. So you don't want to be doing that. So if if you want really good navigation system, you've got inertial guidance, which is just tracking where you've been and extrapolating where you're going. But what you really need is some kind of external signal. So they take star sightings and so forth visually, but this is the best way to go. Thanks, uh, Rod. Thank you, sir. You bet. All right, pilebooks.com and, of course, the podcast right here on KFI AM 640 and .com.